Hi everyone, welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Building a Complete Arc Flash Safety Program with NFPA 70E, sponsored by Llewellyn Technology. My name is Kevin Drooley. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speaker and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we'll conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speaker. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I will let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speaker today will be Jay Smith. He's the Executive Vice President of Llewellyn Technology and has been with the company for over 15 years. Jay spends most of his time as a consultant to Fortune 100 and 500 companies on NFPA 70E and electrical safety. He also speaks at national trade shows and conferences on the subject of NFPA 70E and ArcFlash. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Uh, Jay, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Kevin, and appreciate uh, Safety and Health putting this on as well as the National Safety Council. Uh, just great to uh, be a part of these events. You guys always, uh, always do a great job. And um, I just want to thank everyone for taking a little bit of time out of your day. Uh, to spend here to talk about electrical safety. And, you know, it's a, it is a very short time frame to be able to cover a, a pretty broad topic that I know um, most of you on the call today are, are going through now. Um, and, you know, electrical safety as it pertains to NFPA 70E, there's a lot of information out there. And today, no matter where you are in your current program, whether you have completed implementing NFPA 70E, you've done arc flash assessments, you've got some training, maybe you've issued some PPE, or if you are in your beginning stages, um, today's topic and the things that we're going to discuss today, I'm going to give you a little bit of a roadmap as to how you can navigate um, what can sometimes be some blurry, blurry items as it pertains to uh, getting all of this stuff completed and getting it implemented in your facility. And so, you know, as we go through this today, you're going to hear from me what the common, the common goal here is, is about electrical safety. You know, there's a lot of information out there around uh, arc flash in particular, uh, around PPE, but the main goal of, of everything on this talk today, the, the, the main thing that we're going to focus on is doing it for the right reasons, and, and that is to protect the employees. And w with that, I, I'd like to start with a... Um, just a short video, and this is a video that is uh, widely available. It's probably been seen by most of you. It's it's you know available out on YouTube, um, and you know in this in this video here, I'm, I'm not really going to comment on you know doing things right, doing things wrong. Was he or she wearing the right gear? Did they do you know that they done an arc flash? I really wanted to show this because this was a very routine task that was being carried out. You know, racking in, racking out a breaker, and you know, from, from the video that you saw there, um, you know, it is a little bit grainy. It is a little bit tough to see. It, it did appear that the individual was wearing some form of PPE. Whether it was the right level, I don't know. I'm not going to comment on. But the reason for that, that video there that I wanted to show that is that is a very common task and obviously a very catastrophic, in this case, arc flash event. And these things happen. And they happen, you know, even if we are doing things the right way, they can still happen. So we need to make sure that we're not just going through the motions when it pertains to protecting our employees uh, from electrical arc and, and also electrical shock. We've got to make sure that we keep safety as the forefront of why we're doing that. 
And, you know, with that, you know, everyone needs to implement NFPA 70E. I know we have, I think there's close to maybe 1,000 participants today on this call, and that's wonderful. And I know that we've got a varying range of industries represented here today. You know, so it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a manufacturing facility or a, an office building or a, a municipal, a hospital, you know, a college, you know, whatever. If you have electricity in your facility, you have employees, whether they're your own or you, or you have contractors come in and perform electrical work, everyone has to implement NFPA 70E. And as I started with, we got to make sure that we're doing it for the right reasons. You know, there's, there are regulatory requirements uh, for, for arc flash and for safety and for, for obviously for training. But we don't, I want to make sure that we don't get hung up on the compliance aspect of this thing because the, the goal about this is to prevent injuries. It's to prevent these things from happening. It's to prevent them from, from being um, something that can injure or, or, or in many cases cause a fatality of one of your employees. And, and that's the goal. And, you know, I always say that if we strive for safety, we're automatically going to be compliant. If we do things the right way, and we truly do what we can and, and follow standards and regulations that are out there and industry best practices to protect our employees, compliance is something that's automatically going to follow. So just make sure you're not just checking the box. You know, make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons and that you are doing it to protect the employees because, you know, it's very easy to look compliant. But implementing 70E and going through some of the things we're going to go through today it's not something you just do in 2017 and say, yep, well, we've done it, we're moving on to the next thing. It's more than that. Implementing this standard and, and going through the things that we're going to talk about today forever changes maintenance in your facility, forever. So it actually could be one of the biggest things that you've ever undertaken. So we've got to make sure that we know what we're doing, we know that we're doing it the right way. But we're not going to worry about compliance because, you know what, 70E is not the law. And, you know, years ago when this thing really, when 70E really started getting a lot of traction, there were some major fatalities and some major citations that were issued, which is why 70E really started getting a lot of attention. It's been around for over 30 years. Uh, but it was the early 2000s that it really started getting the traction. And one of the things we always heard early on was, well, this isn't the law. You know, we're, we're not going to do this, and we're not going to spend the money on, on PPE and this arc flash and this training and all this. We're, you know, it's not the law, so we're not going to do it. Well, I used to, you know, lock horns and, and, and roll up my sleeves and try to argue the, that point with folks. But I finally stopped doing that because 70E is not the law. But it doesn't matter because basically what we have to follow is from a regulatory stand, standpoint are, are these codes right here. OSHA obviously has written codes that we can use to protect our employees. They have 132 that says you have to provide PPE to your employees. It has to be appropriate for the, for the hazard. They say that you have to do a hazard assessment. Now, for those of you on the phone today, I, on this call, I, you know, I'm sure that I've probably got several safety managers and professionals that have been involved in some form of a hazard assessment at some point in your life. You know, and some hazard assessments are really easy. You know, I always use the, the, the one, uh, you know, if, if you happen to work at a concrete block manufacturer and you have employees that carry blocks around and they frequently drop them on their toes, well, <laughs> easy hazard assessment could be done there, right? They need to wear steel-toed boots or, you know, we need to change the way that they're carrying the blocks around easy hazard assessment. Unfortunately, an electrical hazard assessment to determine the potential for arc is not that simple. You can't just look at an electrical cabinet and know what the arc flash hazard is. It doesn't, doesn't matter what color it is, what size it is, how old it is, okay? I mean, those things can play, have a play into it, but you just can't look at a panel and know what the hazard is. But that's what OSHA says we have to do. They say we have to conduct a hazard assessment to provide this PPE, and then we have to have it all wrapped up and documented in a specific work practice. But that's all they say. And that's where 70E comes into play. That's why we have this document. This document was actually written by the urging of OSHA uh, in order to help carry out what what OSHA says you have to do. Oh, and then going one step further, you know, for those of you that are familiar with OSHA, we then have the general duty clause, which is basically uh, you have to provide a, a workplace free from hazards, and, you know, they can cite you if they feel that you haven't done that. 
Okay? So that's the law. That's what they state, but that doesn't really help us get it done. That's why we talk about, that's why you hear so much emphasis on NFPA 70E. So again, we're doing it for the right reasons. We're using 70E as a guideline, you know, to, to help us get it done. But at the end of the day, the goal here is to try to, in, where we can, prevent these from even happening. And if we do have to have workers in an environment where these hazards exist, we know what kind of protective equipment that they may or may not have to wear. Okay, so let's keep that in mind as we go through this today, that we're not worrying about compliance. We're worrying about the safety aspect of it. Now, this is the point where I'm, you know, when I'm at a live audience where I like to ask people, everyone to raise your hand. So I'm just going to imagine that, you know, several of you are raising your hand right now. But I always like to ask, you know, for those of you that have gone through this or have, or, or maybe starting this process, what, you know, what has been the most difficult thing for you so far? You know, and I, and I typically hear a range of, of questions that, you know, or, or, or responses to this, but you know, one of them has been a lot of times, well, it's, you know, getting the money to do it, or it's convincing management to do it, or it's getting the buy-in, you know, from people, you know, who've been around my, my, you know, my facility for many years, and they're saying, why do we got to do this now? You know, I've, I've been doing this for 30 years, and I ain't dead yet. You know, we, I see those kinds of responses. And so, you know, in, in all of these that I do, one of the most common themes that, that it always comes back to is that the biggest difficulty, the biggest obstacle that a lot of folks like you that are on this call today are going to face in getting this done is the culture change. It's changing the culture of not only your employees, but your management, your, your entire company culture. And, you know, for, the, for reasons that I just mentioned, you know, there a moment ago, was because you, we are faced a lot of times with a, you know, with a workforce that is very highly skilled, um, has probably been doing it for quite a while, has most likely in their lifetime not experienced an arc flash. But maybe they've heard of it or they know about it and they think, oh my gosh, arc flash. That, I think of arc flash, I think of hot, heavy clothes, I think of spacesuits and all this stuff that's going to make my life a wreck, make my job more difficult. You know, that unfortunately is, is kind of the mantra as, as far as what's out there when you mention arc flash. And a lot of times, even in a management situation, management doesn't understand why now we've got to get this done. So the biggest thing that you have to start working on right up front is changing the culture of your facility. Because it's one of the most time-consuming things that you're going to have to deal with. It can be one of the, actually one of the most difficult things that you can face when you're trying to get this done. And, you know, it's, it's one of the things that, unfortunately, you, you can't just write a check for and get it done. <laughs> you know, a lot of getting NFPA 70E done is that, you know, yeah, you might have to spend some money. You might need to change some PPE. You might need to, you know, get some training or, you know, get some other things involved, which require you might have to spend a little bit of money. But you can't just go out one day and say, oh, I'm going to change the culture of everyone. You know, but it has to happen. It has to happen. And I want to give you a few tips on how to get that done. You're sitting there saying, man, you're right, Jay. You know, you know exactly what we're dealing with right now. We can't get this done. I can't get people to buy in on it. So, you know, I understand that. But I want to give you a couple tips. We need to make sure that we're involving the right people. Don't, don't just try to go out and get this done on your own. And, you know, then, you know, maybe just spring it on your crew once, once you're ready to get started on it. You need to make sure that you're involving the right people early on. And, and by, right, by the right people, who, who do I mean? Well, the end users, for example, are, are, are a good example of that. You know, uh, your, your electrical staff, your, your facility maintenance staff, you know, the folks that are out there, uh, you know, getting this, getting this work done, keeping things running, you know, in your facility. Um, you know, I like to say your top guy or gal in your facility. Get them involved early because, they're the ones that are going to help you push this out to the rest of the facility. They're the ones that are going to, basically, everyone is going to look to as, oh, okay, well, man, you know, Bob's been here for 25 years, and, you know, he was against this early on, but now, you know, he's on, he's on the side of this, so maybe we ought to take a look at this thing. <laughs> I mean, trust me, it's going to make your life a lot easier if you get involvement of the key individuals up front and early. And, and that also goes with management. You know, get, if, if you're struggling with getting this implemented in your facility because there's someone, you know, in management standing in your way, do everything in your power to get them 
some form of training on it. Get them to one of these them sessions. To one of hopefully, these. Some of you, hopefully you're on the, you know, some of you are on this call today. But we need to make sure that everyone understands why we're doing it and that we are doing it because these things happen. Art Flash happened. Whether or not you've seen one in your lifetime, they happen. And I'm going to give you some information on where to research that a little further uh, here a bit later. So make sure we change the culture. I, I also say we, we've got to make passionate decisions. And what I mean by that is we've got to make decisions for the right reasons. You know, I said earlier that well, we're just going to check the box and get Art Flash done. No, that's, that's not what we're doing. We, we've got to make sure that at the end of this thing that we can go home every night and say, you know what, I've done everything in my power to ensure that my electrical staff and those that are doing facility maintenance in my, in my building are going to also go home. I've done what I can to ensure that I've removed the hazards where possible, but if not, I've trained them and I've implemented these things in order to make sure that they go home. We've got to make sure we're making the right decisions. We're making passionate decisions for, you know, for the better of our, of our employees and really for safety. So you know, changing the culture very important. I, I say one of the most important things. You need to start that immediately. Hopefully this call today, hopefully this is going to help you a little bit. And, and if not, maybe that some of the supporting information that we'll provide you later um, can help you do that. But we've got to start on the culture change and get that taken care of quickly. Now, one of the biggest reasons that NFPA 70E exists is because we have got to stop doing live work. There has got to be, it's just, it, we can't do it. You know, the little, oh, I'll just do this real quick because I've done it a thousand times. No, we cannot do live work. They basically 70E, you know, really exists because they want to make sure that we get equipment in an electrical safe work condition, that we turn it off before we do live work. Now, obviously, you know, troubleshooting is something that we have to perform. We have to do troubleshooting in order to find what a problem is. Now, of course, we're doing that with the proper PPE, and you know, we've had our arc flash assessments, and we know how to troubleshoot properly. But once we've identified a problem, we have to turn the equipment off. Because unfortunately, this is where we see some of the largest volume of these types of events happening. Now, for those of you on the call saying, well, you know what, Jay, there's, there's strikes two and three, because we have in our facility a perfect lockout-tagout policy. We have no live work policies. Our lockout tagout policy is perfect. Our guys never, guys and gals never do live work, so we don't even really need to do this stuff because of lockout tagout. But I want to pause right there, and I want to remind you of a little something uh, regarding lockout tagout that's sometimes overlooked, which is why lockout tagout violations are still in the top five most cited OSHA violations every year is because there's a little thing in lockout tagout called verification of isolation uh, when, we're, when we're doing uh, electrical work. We have to actually verify that the system is de-energized. And, 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 and guess what? Uh, that is considered to OSHA hazardous work. That's considered live work. Until we have uh, verified that the system is actually de-energized, it's still considered live work. Now, you should have a perfect lockout tagout policy. You should have lockout tagout procedures written so that every employee in your facility knows how to follow them and knows how to safely protect themselves when they are inside, you know, an electrical cabinet or a piece of equipment to actually, you know, change a part or, you know, fix the problem. But just because you have a perfect lockout tagout program does not exempt you from anything in 70E. You still need to go through and, and develop, you know, a 70E program and, you know, make sure that we're following the practices for Arc Flash and for PPE and training and, and a whole bunch of other stuff we're going to talk about here in a minute. But uh, I always want to pause here and just make sure everyone understands that because I, I've actually had that rebuttal from folks before that have said, well, you know, we have a perfect lockout program, so we don't need to go through all of this. Not true. Absolutely, they go hand in hand. 70E focuses a lot on locking and tagging on, you know, getting equipment in, a, in an electrical safe work condition. So um, we got to make sure that, you know, even though we have that, we're still following the safe work practices in, in FPA 70E. Now, I mentioned earlier, you know, making sure we know what we're doing. Uh, kind of a, you know, I hate to use buzzwords, but this is kind of one that, that's getting a lot of attention from folks lately. Um, you know, the qualified person, a lot of information in NFPA 70E, a lot of information out there swirling around about making sure you have qualified people. And I understand and, and talk to a lot of folks that, that 
this is sometimes a problem. This, this can be an issue where um, it's sometimes a little cloudy on what does it actually mean? What is an actual qualified person? And it's very simple that a qualified person is trained and knowledgeable on the tasks that they're performing. They know how to protect themselves from these hazards. And we've had it documented that basically they know what they're doing. That's really a very simple um, description of what a qualified person is. Basically, they've been trained, and they're knowledgeable, and they can demonstrate, and we have it all documented and written into a program, and, and you know, into an electrical safety program. Now, the, the one thing, though, I, I want to remember here that, that you, you've got to consider. When I talk about a qualified worker program or I talk about a safety program, remember, this is your program. Now, there are a lot of things out there that you can use as, as boilerplates and things that you can look at to, to kind of follow along as a guideline. You know, our company, we write customized electrical safety programs for folks all the time that cover, you know, qualified worker and training and arc flash and, you know, PPE and, and, and everything. We, we help with that. But it's your program. And, you know, it's, it's got to be what's perfect for you, not what's necessarily perfect for, for, for everyone else or, you know, per code and standard. You know, it's very, I just gave you a very simple explanation of what the code says a qualified worker means. But you remember this is what works for you. And, and I always kind of joke that, you know, if you want to put in your qualified worker program that your electrical staff has to run around the building twice every day before they start their shift. I know that's silly, ha ha. But I, I'm using that as an example to say you can put that in there. You, this is your program. Okay, so just don't get caught up in, in this perfect qualified worker program. It's very simple. We've got to have documented and verified training that they know what they're doing. You've got to have training on electrical safety, how to use PPE, how to read the art flash labels. And, and 70 actually goes a little further and says that you have to have documented training for your qualified people that they know how to use a meter. Now, how many of you have had that? How, how many of you have had your staff go through that, that they are able to determine all of the indications provided by a meter? Okay? A lot of times we see that, you know, that's training that is overlooked. That's a hands-on type of aspect of training. Okay? Now, I, I want to go one step further with this. Uh, and, and I like to use my dad, and I'm going to use my dad a couple of times here today. You know, my dad is retired. He was an electrician for, for 32 years. He worked in the coal mines. And um, he was a, in the state of Indiana, that's where I'm from, he was a federally licensed master electrician. Huge title. Had a card and everything <laughs> that said he was a federally licensed master electrician. Highly trained, highly skilled, knew what he was doing. And he was very qualified for working at the coal mines. Okay? But if he decided that he wanted to leave the coal mine industry and he wanted to go work for, uh, I don't know, let's say a, a plastics plant down the street, Unfortunately, he would not show up on day one and be a qualified electrical worker at that plastics plant. And that's going to be a tough pill for that guy to swallow, especially my dad. 32 years in the trade, he knew what he was doing, right? He was pretty, he was pretty good at what he did, okay? But he wasn't trained on, like I mentioned earlier, on what their qualified program was, what their equipment was, okay? So you see the main goal here, the, 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 the main theme about the qualified person? It's about training. We have to train them. Don't be afraid to get them in, you know, a class because it has to be documented and it has to be verified. Because I'll tell you this, in the event of one of, you know, if, if, if you would happen to be unfortunate and have an event in your facility that is an, an ARC event, you know, and, and OSHA had to come and investigate, you know, one of the first questions that they're going to ask you was, was he or she even qualified to be doing the work? And you can't just say, well, yeah, well, you know, Jay's been doing this for 30 years. <laughs> that, no, that's not going to cut it. If they ask you if this person was a qualified person or not, and you say yes, you know what their next question is going to be? Prove it. Okay? So that's where the documentation, and that's where making sure that we have verified training is going to come into play. Now, I want to throw this out here. Just because you go to a training class doesn't necessarily make you qualified. All right? Confused now? <laughs> I just said you need to get training to be qualified. Well, it's, it's a progression. Okay, training is the progression. 
All right, okay, Llewellyn Technology, we offer all kinds of, of electrical training. We offer, obviously, safety training, hands-on troubleshooting training, all kinds of different skills training, and you could take, you know, thousands of hours of, of Llewellyn electrical classes, and we'd love for you to. But at the end of the day, we are not qualifying your employee. We are just a progression. We are the documentation. We are helping you get it verified that that individual went through the training that they need. But at the end of the day, only you, the employer, can do that. Only you can, you know, as I say, sprinkle a magic dust on their head and say you are now qualified. Okay? But you have to have it documented, has to be in your program as to what that looks like, and then it comes to you. Now, a lot of times I get this question, well, Jay, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm in safety. I mean, these electrical guys and gals are way smarter than I am. I mean, you mean to tell me that I, I mean, how, how am I supposed to qualify them? I, I don't even really know what I'm doing. Well, that, that's a lot of times where you need to outsource the help. You know, if, if you don't have the means or the capabilities internally to train your staff or to get all of this documentation that you need, that's where you can outsource it. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we offer training. You know, you might need to bring a third party in to help you get it done, to help you get your qualified worker or safety program up to speed, help get training, get it all packaged in a, you know, into one place. That's where you might need to seek some outside help. But it can be done. You know, don't, don't feel like it's an overwhelming task. It's very simple to get done, but we have to make sure that we have qualified workers um, you know, out there doing the job. It's not only for, you know, obviously that's the, the CYA part of, you know, the, the aspect of things, but it's to make sure that, you know, we can go home, as I said earlier, go home at night knowing that, you, you know, they know what they're doing. And, um, again, we're doing it for the right reasons. We're doing it for, the, for their safety, okay? So qualified workers, not that big of a deal. Um, might need to get some outsourced help for that. Now, let's talk about the big one here. Um, incident energy analysis, formally called an arc flash assessment, an arc flash analysis, you know, 70E changes every few years, and in the, the 2015 edition, they kind of went away from using, you know, the, the term an arc flash analysis and started using an incident energy analysis. And, and there's a very good reason why they did that. We're going to talk a little bit more about it later, but you, more focus is being put on the incident energy. Um, we're going to talk here in a few minutes about the categories of, of, of clothing and some changes that happened with that. Um, but, um, you know, we're talking more now about incident energy, the actual calculation of, of this hazard. And, you know, it's a hazard assessment. That's what an arc flash is. It's, it's a hazard assessment, an incident energy analysis. It's a hazard assessment, as I mentioned earlier, basically to determine if in the event of something goes wrong in your facility, is it going to be a small spark or is it going to be a life-altering explosion like we saw at the video to, to start to start the show. Um, that would be a life-altering, um, you know, fatal type of uh, arc flash event. But I want to remember here, this is not just about electrical engineering, okay? The, we hear a lot of times that, oh, it's an engineering study. No, it's not an engineering study. An incident energy analysis is 100% not an engineering study. It is a safety study. It is a safety assessment. Yes, there is some electrical engineering that has to be done as part of it, but that's not, that's not the main goal of this thing. The main goal of this is to find hazards and where we can reduce them or completely eliminate them. That needs to be the main goal here because knowing what we now know about why arc flash in certain cases is higher than maybe in others or why arc flash sometimes occurs, knowing what we now know after all of these years of doing it, we actually can get rid of it in most cases. Mitigate it is a term that you'll hear quite frequently used. Mitigate the hazards. Reduce them to where, you know, I mean, you're obviously reducing the amount of PPE, but you're also removing the risk. And, you know, as safety professionals out there, that should be your goal. That should always be your goal for your employees is to remove the hazards, you know, and not to just throw people in spacesuits and say, good luck, this spacesuit should protect you. That is not our goal. Uh, IEEE, NFPA 70E, everyone actually says, you know, PPE is the last line of defense. It's not the first line of defense. It's what you do at the end when you've done, gone through all the other measures you can to protect the employee. But the goal is not about labels, the goal is not about engineering, and the goal is not to wear spacesuits, okay? Because, you know, I, I don't make a lot of guarantees when it comes to arc flash, but there's one thing I can tell you. 
is if you are wearing one of those spacesuits, and I'm going to show you a picture of one of those later if you're not familiar with it. If you're wearing a 40 cal suit, let's say, for example, and you're in a 40 cal arc flash explosion, you're going to go to the hospital, period. Okay? That suit hopefully saved your life, but you're still going to go to the hospital. And so as a, as a safety professional or as a manager of electrical folks, that shouldn't be our goal, should it? To send someone to the hospital, okay? So I'm, I, I pound really hard on this. I get up on a pretty high soapbox when it comes to doing an incident energy analysis the right way and, and making sure that we're not just going out and, and putting stickers on cabinets and throwing spacesuits to our people. We've got to make sure that we're finding these hazards and, where possible, mitigating them completely and engineering them, getting them out of your system. Now, real quickly, we're not going to go into a bunch of heavy, completely heavy detail on what a complete engineer incident energy analysis is. I'm just going to give you, really, there's three main steps to getting it done. And then I'm going to briefly go through these steps in a little more detail. But again, today, this isn't an engineering uh, webinar. This is a safety webinar. So I'm just going to quickly run through it. But there's three main steps. First of all, data collection. Someone has to be in your facility in order for you to have an incident energy analysis done. Someone has to break a sweat. Someone has to be in the building opening up electrical equipment. Okay? If, if you're talking to firms that are wanting to help you get an incident energy analysis and they say, hey, send me your electrical drawings and we'll send you some labels. No. <laughs> Hide your checkbook. Run away. You can't do it. Someone has to be in your building breaking a sweat, opening up equipment, and getting some information. The second part of it is the solutions phase. This is where we're going to find the solutions. And, and you know, obviously we're finding the goods and we're finding the bads, but when we find the bads, we're providing a solution in order to reduce them or mitigate them completely. And then the final step is someone has to come back to the facility and, and apply labels. If you're doing this internally, you know, that's wonderful. But if you are outsourcing it, you need to make sure you have folks on site, on the ground, in your building, helping you get this done. There's a report that's generated from all of this, the arc flash assessment, the incident energy calculations, and then labels do need to get put on the cabinet. Now, when I say someone needs to be in your building, what do I mean? Well, you've got, if you have electrical drawings in your, for your building, wonderful, great. They're, they're, they are a useful tool, but they don't have the things we need. Okay? They don't have everything we need. They don't have settings of breakers and fuse ratings and frame numbers and all of the distances and all of the wire sizes and everything that needs to be done in order to get this done properly. Okay? So that's basically what's going on during the data collection phase. Um, basically, it's a complete autopsy of your facility. And at the end of it, you are going to get new drawings. That is just a byproduct of, of an arc flash assessment is that you will have new drawings once this whole thing's over. So that's what the data collection in the facility would look like. Um, the second part I talked about is the engineering. That's where, you know, there's a series of studies that are done uh, in order to arrive at the main goal here. There's a short circuit analysis of basically how much is coming. There's a coordination analysis that's done that determines the order of, uh, of how things, you know, function in the building, the fuses and breakers. Uh, how quickly can they interrupt the fault that's coming? And then, obviously, there's a, a rating for the arc flash hazard. Um, but we have to have all of this done in order to provide mitigation. So, if you're talking to someone or you're getting ready to do this on your own, please make sure that you are doing everything listed on this slide. You have to do all four of those assessments, all four of those analysis in order to be able to, to properly mitigate the hazard. You have to know everything about why an arc is higher in one area than another in order to be able to fix it. Okay, so this is a very important part of, of your of your arc flash assessment, your incident energy analysis, is making sure that you're doing the right, uh, you know, doing the right studies in order to get to the common goal here, which is uh, getting rid of these hazards. And then I mentioned, you know, the, one of the final things is is the delivery. Um, that would be where everything would be packaged in a report for you. Uh, the labels, you know, there are labels. I'm going to show you a picture of a label here in a minute. Uh, labels do need to go on the cabinets. Um, that is a, you know, it's a regulatory requirement, um, you know, for for having proper labeling. And then, uh, you know, in this report, that would be where the mitigation, uh, you know, the recommendations that were made to reduce the hazards, uh, that would be where this would be categorized in the report for you. So real quick, you know, a few slides here on an incident energy analysis. Uh, if you are outsourcing this, um, you know, make sure that you know what you're getting. Make sure you know who you're talking to. Make sure you know what their core business is. 
because you know if, if you jumped on Google nowadays and typed in art flash I mean you could scan for probably 15 or 20 pages of, of folks that are out there doing art flash but you know really make sure if you're looking to outsource this make sure you know who it is that you're getting ready to partner with because you know I this is something that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, is changes maintenance forever. So you do want a partner. You want someone whose core business is in line with your core goals, which is to protect your employees. So you want to make sure that if you're looking to, to outsource this, that you're partnering with a safety company that can help you get it done the right way and for the right reasons. But not only that, be here years later. Be here when the next revision of 70E comes around or, or when the, you, know, you change something in your facility or add or modify something in your facility and you're going to need to get this updated. You want to make sure that you know, whoever's going to be at the other end of that call, first of all, is still going to be there. You're not going to have to have multiple levels to go through in order to find them, but that they're also aligned with your core value, which is to protect your employees. So that's my recommendation you know, to, to follow these, these items that I outlaid here for the three steps to get it done. But uh, at the end of the day, let's make sure that you know we're continue we're doing it for the right reasons. Now, I mentioned there earlier the the NFPA 70E changing and and having someone partnered with you that can help you manage that. This is the most current version that we are working off of. Uh, it is this this baby blue crushed blue color uh, type of book. Um, it is a very small book. Uh, it's maybe 70 pages or so. There's really about I don't know 35 pages that really apply. Um, for you know what we're talking about as far as electrical safety, arc flash type of things, um, but this is the 2015. We are in the they are in the review and comment period now for the 2018, which is getting ready to come out. Um, and so the standard changes sometimes. And in 2015, um, there were some some pretty pretty sizable changes. Um, the the cool thing about this though is, you know, I mentioned earlier, it is relatively new, and they're improving it. Okay, so if you haven't done this, you know, don't feel like you've missed the boat. You're actually entering into a good time because every three years, the standard improves. It, it, they, they, they've taken comment and feedback from industry, from lots of safety professionals all over the country, and they keep updating this document in order to make it easier for you to get it done. And I feel that the 2015 really did that. And we're going to talk real quickly here about a few of the changes um, you know, just especially for those of you that have already gone through some of this, some things that you might need to look at or update. So I do want to talk real quickly about some of the 2015 changes. And well, <laughs> okay, this slide here is not one of the 2015 changes. This is a cue for me here. Um, so I'm, I'm from southern Indiana, and, and I don't know, obviously, people from all over the country on this call today, but you know, most of you have probably seen this sign uh, at some point in your life. Um, in southern Indiana, we've got these things everywhere. Okay, you drive up and down the road, we've got a watch out for deer warning sign, you know, every couple hundred feet, all right, because we've got deer everywhere in southern Indiana. Out west, I see the falling rock sign. So if you're out west, replace the deer sign with a falling rock sign. But the reason I put this here is because I hear a lot of bad information out there about labels, about labeling. Well, let's just, you know, Let's just put some stickers on our cabinets and, and that says warning arc flash and throw our guys some spacesuits and we're good. And there's been a lot of that going on lately with just putting warn, general warning stickers on, on equipment and calling it a day because we can check the box and we can say that we've gone through the motions of arc flash. So, you know, it got me thinking about this sign that I see as I drive up and down the road, you know, as it pertains to that, that you know, generic kind of way to approach arc flash. You know, that's kind of what this sign is, isn't it? You know, I mean, do, do you think that, that I really behave any differently when I'm driving down the road and I see this sign? You know, I mean, do, do, do you? I mean, do you slow down? You know, do you, do you really look and keep your eyes out for, for deer uh, that are about to jump out in front of you potentially? You know, of course you don't. You know, this is a, gener a general, very general warning sign, right? Just says warning. There may be a deer that runs out in front of you. And I'm like, I'm in southern Indiana. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, there's deer laying everywhere that's been hit by cars. But I don't behave any differently. Well, unfortunately, that's kind of the same thing as it pertains to just going through the motions and slapping stickers on cabinets without really knowing what or why we're doing it. You know, it's the same thing as this deer sign. So I put this here as a visual cue for you. If you take nothing else out of this presentation today but this image of this deer sign, then, then that's great because I want you to remember that it's not just about general warning. It's not just about going through the motions. 
okay? Let's take this sign even further. You know, let's say the good old state of Indiana. What if they put on this sign that every Tuesday and Thursday between 4.30 and 6.30, deer run right across this spot right here? And as I approached that spot and I saw that warning sign, don't you think that I would probably at that point behave a little bit differently? Of course I would. They've now just told me when and where exactly and what time a deer is going to run out in front of me as I'm driving down the road, which if there are any deer hunters on the phone today, that's a pretty valuable piece of information to know when and where deer cross, okay, for, for other reasons. But let's equate that to warning our employees of hazards in their facility, okay? So keep this in mind. Let's not just go through the motions. Let's make sure that we know what we're getting. And I, and I mentioned, you know, i got to talk about a label here. This is real quickly what the labels need to look like. They need to make sure that they've got uh, the appropriate uh, arc flash and shock hazard written on there. Uh, they've got to make sure the voltage, the boundary. And then it says a little change here, the incident energy level uh, or, or the category basically, but not both. Ah, this was a big change that occurred this year uh, was the uh, getting rid of the categories. So basically, here's what's going on. There are no longer categories as it pertains to an incident energy analysis, as it pertains to your arc flash label. If you are doing an incident energy analysis in your building, your labels now need to have the calorie rating on them. Okay? Now I get the question, oh my gosh, we did it years ago, we still got the category on our label. No problem. Make sure the incident energy is on there as well, but I, my suggestion for you is as you get your, your study updated or as you change things in your facility, go ahead and ha make sure you have new labels printed uh, in order to, you know, make sure you're up with the, with the current standard, uh, you know, and, and it's not really a big deal. I'm, I'm going to show you something here in a minute that's going to help you, but um, basically we've got to make sure that we're focusing on the actual rating of the, of the hazard, not just some category uh, that's out there. So that was a big change, getting rid of the categories. Um, in my opinion, it's actually been more helpful. We struggled with it as well when it first started, but um, it's something that has really, really been better because it makes things, make things a lot easier as far as selecting PPE. Um, you know, I want to show you a real quick chart here. Um, you're going to have the ability at the end of this presentation to download this chart. Um, it's a very simple PPE chart. Um, it's kind of grainy, I know, probably on your screen and tough to see. But, you know, obviously we want to be dressed like the guy on the left, right? You know, not the, not the person that's over on the far right in the spacesuit, okay? But we offer these PPE charts for our, for our clients and for you, those of you on the call today, you'll be able to download one. Uh, very simply goes through the, the three main levels of PPE that are out there now. Um, as they pertain to the rating of the of the equipment, but uh, you know, as I mentioned, we can you'll have an ability to download this as well as it's on Llewellyn.com. You can also request it there as well if you if you want to stop there after the presentation today. Now, one of the other items that, that was put a little bit more emphasis on here. I don't. I'm assuming there's probably folks in here today that maybe own equipment but don't work on it, don't service it, uh, that contract it out. Possibly you are a service person on this call today, and you're the one that has to go into client facilities and do the work. So who has to get this all done? Well, they tightened it up a little bit this year. They basically stated now that, um, you know, whoever owns the equipment needs to be the one that puts the stickers on, that, that does the arc flash assessment, the incident energy calculations. Um, it's the owner's responsibility or their designated representative, but they have to work together. Okay, so um, if you're, you know, struggling with this or if you're going up against something that, you know, you're having trouble getting this done, it's referenced this year. Um, I'd be happy to, to, you know, to have further discussions after the call today uh, to try to help you get that done. But there has been more emphasis on uh, making sure whoever owns the equipment uh, is the one that's responsible for it. Um, that was a change in the 2015. Another change in the 2015, which was really kind of helpful, operating disconnects. Used to be this was kind of a pain because 70E was a little bit vague. It said, you know, well, you know, do I have to wear PPE just to throw the switch or, you know, do I not have to wear it? And they were kind of vague on, on what they said. They actually changed that this year for operating a, a, a circuit breaker or a, a, a disconnect. Um, they've, made it, they've made it a little easier this year. They basically say that as long as you can satisfy three conditions, you can operate that switch, that disconnect, without wearing PPE. You have to make sure, though, that the equipment has been properly installed and maintained, that the doors and covers are in place and secured properly, and that there's no evidence of impending failure. Now, first two, pretty easy, right? Properly installed and maintained, should be. Doors and covers are in place and secured, should be. 
Uh, how about impending failure? That one's a little bit tougher, okay? I always use this example. I, I have a pickup truck that has evidence of impended failure, okay? It's got rust and parts and pieces falling off of it, all right? That would be a sign of impending failure, okay? Doors and covers, okay? Rusted off, hinges broke, screws missing, knockouts, all things that would not satisfy, you know, these three items, then you would have to wear the appropriate PPE. But as long as you could verify that your disconnects are all covered up under these three requirements, they say you can now operate those without wearing a, a level of PPE that would maybe be on the, on the arc flash label. Now, this is my opinion. This is my example. This slide is what my opinion is you need to do in order to have a safe facility. Um, you need to make sure that we do the incident energy analysis. That's a given. We've already gone through that. We need to label all of the equipment with the right labels not the little deer stickers, okay? Right labels that show the actual hazard. We need to fix the hazards where we can. We need to train and document our qualified people. We need to make sure we have lockout tagout procedures. Hey, we, then we got to tie all this together in a safety program. If you don't have a safety program that's up to date and, and, and addresses all of this, you need to get one. We need to make sure we're doing preventative maintenance, IR scans, starting to be very important. Um, folks are getting those done. You know, something that Llewellyn really, really, we really focus on is making sure that we're helping with your PMs. And then we got to keep it all updated because as I mentioned earlier, this standard does change and also things in your facility changes. So when that happens, we've got to make sure that we, we make, make, make the right changes to our program as well. Now, again, you know, we've got to implement NFPA 70E. Everyone has to do it, but we've got to make sure that we're doing it for the right reasons. The right reasons are to prevent injury, not for compliance. Don't just go through the motions. Talk to some folks. Please talk to us if you need help. We'd be happy to help you, consult you, point you in the right direction if we have to, uh, but make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Now, I mentioned earlier that um, you're going to have at the end of this show, you're going to have the opportunity to download that poster as well as some additional resources, but I also encourage you to go to our website, Llewellyn.com. Lots of valuable information there, um, lots of question and answers. You know, we, we, we talk a lot of, you know, get, answer a lot of questions and post them a lot of times on our website about, you know, some of the struggles or the obstacles that folks may be going through out there in industry. But, you know, I encourage you to go to Llewellyn.com, and, um, you know, I know that they'll find, you'll find some very valuable information there. But um, that's the time that I have. I want to make sure we have a few minutes for questions, but I, I thank all of you for listening. Excellent. Great job, Jay. Uh, no, we certainly thank you for your insight and expertise. Before we start the Q&A, just want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen now, and again, your, your input is important because it will help us improve future webcasts. If you don't see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. And with that, we will get to some questions. The first is NFPA 70E law or recommendation? Uh, it is a recommendation. Um, OSHA is citing and referencing it in their citations and abatements that they are referencing uh, implementing safe work practices such as uh, NFPA 70E. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, I don't know how you could ever comply with what OSHA requires you to do without NFPA 70E. Um, it is the only national standard out there uh, that, that is able to help you accomplish what OSHA requires you to do. Um, and if you spoke to anyone in OSHA, they would most likely give you the same response. So uh, it is a professional opinion. It is a committee that, I mean, come on, it's the National Fire Protection Association. You know, they write the, the national, it's basically the National Electrical Code. So they know what they're doing. Um, but um, 70E in as itself is not a law. All right. The next one, what should we look for in an instructor conducting NFPA 70E training? Well, I mean, I always say that it's good if the person that's conducting the training, first of all, has passion, that they believe in what they're saying. Um, it, it actually doesn't help if they, you know, it helps if they had a scar, <laughs> if they've worn a tool belt, if they've been out in industry. You know, I used my dad as an example earlier. He's retired from, retired from the coal mines, and then he came to work for our company, Llewellyn, and he's since now retired from here. But, um, you know, he was in an arc flash in the early 90s. Uh, he believed in this stuff. He understood it. You know, he may not have believed in it, you know, 20 years ago when it happened, but um, 
you know, he believed in it after he was a part of it. So, you know, I say that you just know who's, who's doing the class. It helps if they've had experience in electrical, but 100% they have to believe what they're saying. They have to believe that doing it for the right reasons to protect your employees. They can't just say, well, let's run through some of this 70E stuff. You know, they've got to believe it. They've got to be able to help you change the culture of those that are in the class. So make sure they know what they're talking about and that they're passionate. All right. What is the best way to implement arc flash safety during a new installation and startup of equipment before incident analysis is complete? Yeah, I mean, that's we, it's the same thing with, you know, for folks that are doing service type of work um, or if you're, you know, you're starting it up and you haven't had the ability to do the incident energy calculations. 70E does have some general guidelines. Uh, in the back, there's some annexes and, and some tables, as they call them, that, that you can use as kind of a best guess uh, in order to give yourself some protection. You know, my advice is always if you're in doubt, overprotect. You know, that's what our company does. You know, we're, we, have the, we don't have the luxury of ever seeing an arc flash label. Most likely when we're doing an arc flash, we're there to do the first one, and we have to open electrical equipment without an arc flash label. So we've developed our own, you know, policies and guidelines to follow using 70E as a guide. But remember, this data in 70E that you're using to, as a guideline, it's, it's based on laboratory settings. You know, and it's saying that all equipment from every industry and all across the world is basically the same, okay? So they have some guidelines, but it is just for a, you know, that type of measure for a very quick, very, very basic way to just get some level of PPE. But my advice is get an incident energy analysis scheduled immediately. Okay. Next item also is asking for some advice. It says, I'm an experienced safety person. My company wants to send me to a class and then do this study analysis based on the knowledge I get from the class. Um, they indicate that it's to save the cost of having an outside vendor doing all of this. And then uh, just what are your recommendations for that scenario? Well, I'm, you know, I don't want to say that you, know, you wouldn't be qualified to do this um, or, or that you wouldn't be able to get the training. One thing you just need to keep in mind, um, I, I don't know, you know, are you an engineer, are you a PE? You know, most states do have requirements as far as a PE uh, signing off on the actual end result, the, end, the final report. Um, so you might want to look at that. The other thing to think of here and to consider, you know, as far as this liability that your company is about to place on your shoulders, because you are now going to be the person that says that this cabinet is rated at this level and that that is the PPE type that your fellow employees are going to have to wear. So just keep that in mind. You know, they're, I'd ask for a raise if they're going to ask me to do it, to be honest with you, because that is an awful lot of liability to put on your shoulders, um, you know, that you are then responsible for that hazard classification that all of the rest of your employees and your contractors are going to be subject to. And in the event something goes wrong, you're going to be put in a position at that point that you may or may not really want to be in. So I'm not saying that you can't do it on your own, but just some things to consider there um, as far as the liability that will surround you doing this, you know, on your own for your company. All right. Um, next one. How long is an arc flash study good for? Does the study quote unquote expire? Um, well, the, the study itself doesn't necessarily expire. 70E has a, a regula regulatory comment in their standard that says that no more than every five years you have to revisit your arc flash study and it needs to be updated. Now, that doesn't mean that every five years you've got to start completely over. Okay, if you're, if, you're working, if you're doing this internally, it should be easy for you to keep it updated. If you're working with an outsourced vendor, it might have been a little tougher for you. But you want to make sure that whoever you're working with on your arc flash is there to help you keep it going. Meaning, if, you're, if you make changes to the facility or add or modify, it needs to be updated at that time. And during that five-year period, you know, we have then re-verified the utility information, make sure nothing changed with what the utility is giving you. Um, but you just it, it needs to be every, no more than every five years revisited, but I re actually recommend that you do that as things change or modify, um, so that way that five-year target is really kind of a moving, you know, it's kind of a moving target, if you will, at that point. Um, but definitely don't do an arc flash study 
and then just sit on it for five years and then say, oh, we need to update it because most likely at that point you would have to start completely over just to make sure everything, you know, nothing has changed. Um, so it doesn't necessarily expire, but there is a five-year regulatory requirement on it. Okay. Kind of staying with that, that theme of time, um, how often do we need to have an incident energy analysis completed? Yeah, so, you, you know, again, kind of same with that question there. Um, you know, if, you've, if you're in a facility that makes a large volume of changes or equipment moves, um, you know, you need to try to capture that information as quickly as possible and get the labels changed and, you know, all the calculations made. So, you know, it's really an ongoing process. Um, you know, that's why I said earlier, you need to make sure you know who you're partnering with on this thing you know, in order to help you manage that going forward. But, you know, you do need to keep it updated no more than every five years. But, you know, if you're doing it as things change, um, it's, a, it's a lot easier. Does ArcFlash clothing need to be rated in calories? Uh, someone saying that theirs is rated in HRC only. No, you need to make sure that you do have a calorie rating. I would talk to your clothing vendor, um, especially if you're doing in some form of rental program or, or something like that. Um, I would be very leery of, of equipment that doesn't have a tag in it that has the actual rating on it. Um, you don't want to just see, you know, HRC2 or HRC4 or CAT2 or CAT4 on the gear. That is a wonderful question, and it is exactly one of the reasons why 70E went away from the categories is because the market has been flooded with all types of clothing from all over the world and not all clothing, unfortunately, has been tested and has been, you know, basically rated the same. And so when you lay down Cat 2 gear, let's say, on a table, well, it all looks the same. It all says it's Cat 2. It's all got to be Cat 2, right? Uh, nope, nope. To the contrary, actually. You need to make sure that you have the calorie rating on the garment inside a tag. You know, if it's on the outside, wonderful. But, you know, the tag must have what the calorie rating is. If it doesn't, ask questions. Make sure you get someone in there to explain why it doesn't, because it, it has to. At what point does the ArcFlash PPE categories method make sense to use? So the category method makes sense to use in a service type of industry. Um, if you're going in and servicing equipment and you don't have the luxury of seeing an ArcFlash, you know, label, um, you know, if it's, if, you know, you don't, basically you can't just not do a job if you're in a service organization because the client didn't do an arc flash study. So the category methods work um, in that respect. You know, we've seen other, other, you know, folks that have gone and done a category on their own um, and made up their own site-specific type of PPE. You're allowed to do that. Um, you just have to make sure that the, you're dressed for the calorie rating on the equipment, if you want to call it in your program, I mean, you can call it CAT 27 if you wanted to. Um, and as long as that meant something to someone and they were trained on it and it's documented and it's in your policy, you can do that. Um, but the label itself and the clothing itself has to have the calorie rating on it. If you behind the scenes want to designate it as something else, you're allowed to do that. All right, looks like we've got time for one more. Um, What's the best way for a commercial industrial HVAC company to meet NFPA 70E standards? Well, the, the best way to do is to make sure you have qualified employees, you have an appropriate training program for them, you're issuing PPE based on what your safety program says, and um, you know that you've just got it all documented. And you know, for, for those folks that are asking that question, um, we help a lot of service organizations, um, you know, industrial type of you know, you mentioned HVAC, but, you know, even property management companies we do a lot of work with that a lot of times will um, not necessarily own the building, but they have to service the building. And so we can help you write that program and, and get your folks a level of protection. And in most cases, you know, hopefully help you persuade uh, the building owners where possible to, uh, to get arc flash assessments. But, um, you know, that's my goal, or my, my recommendation here is that your goal needs to be make sure we're getting them a level of protection and training. 70E can help you with that um, in, in and itself, or please give us a call. We'd be happy to help. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, Jay. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Uh, I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but, again, all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to our speaker. 
Um, once again, we hope that you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. And that ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. We'd like to thank Jay Smith, everyone at Llewellyn Technology, and all of you listen, uh, who listened in today. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye.